0: Now, on The Year That Made Me, we're going to meet Dr Sabina Dasani. The doctor title refers to the fact that Sabina is a medical professional who still works as a consultant, child and adolescent psychiatrist. But Sabina is a doctor who these days is also a doctoral researcher in creative and critical writing at the University of East Anglia. In fact, she's well on the way to getting her PhD and becoming a double doctor. Part of that process involves writing a memoir titled Flesh and Blood, which recounts her experience of recurrent miscarriage while working as a medical expert witness in the family court. The way that Sabina has addressed that in her work and the places it's taking her research and her writing have led Dr Sabina Dasani to be named in the BBC's list of 2022 New Generation Thinkers, which is the list of the UK's most promising and exciting early career researchers. Dr Sabina Dasani, welcome to The Year That Made Me. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Sabina, you're a qualified doctor and a published author many times over, but you're now also described as an early career researcher in medical humanities. What does that mean?
1: Well, I've had an untraditional career path, as you've identified. In recent years, since 2017, I've gone back to big school. I went to university again in 2017 to do a master's in the medical humanities, and I think the best way of describing those are a series of, of lenses You're using art, literature, music, law, history, social geography, ethics to look critically at systems of health and social care and the experience of illness. And that was something that I'd come to through a combination of personal and professional experiences. And after I had done the master's, I really got the bug you know the PhD was a, a natural continuation of that and I've enjoyed teaching and talking about the work that I've been doing both in the the public education role with the BBC but also teaching medical students and I think that this is is phase two of, of my career because I've come to university for the second time in midlife and was very pleased that there were no more these, these ageist restrictions that my my early career in, in that sense has been recognised by the BBC that's a a huge honour for me
0: sabina could you tell us a little bit about your your early life and the journey to becoming a, a medical doctor yes of course
1: so i was born just outside london to parents who had not grown up in the uk my father was born in burma it was during the war his family then became refugees to pakistan and he came to the uk as a young adult And my mother was born in Germany and she came to England for a a brief time to work and met my father and ended up staying. So I was born to parents who were both pioneers in in many ways, but not from a, a medical family. During my teens, I was interested in two things. I've always been interested in English and in literature and in books, but also became very interested in biology and the stories of how the human body works and doesn't work. So it seemed to make sense for me with that interest in science to pursue a career in medicine. Although I remember times where I was torn, where I was thinking about whether it might make sense for me to follow my my love of stories and and read English. So that that love of of writing and words was was always there. But it was that teenage interest in biology that, that led me to medical school and a strong sense of wanting to make people's lives better. And change difficult situations using the knowledge and skills I had from from medical school and later from from psychiatry. That's always been a, a very strong pull.
0: Sabina, you've chosen the year two thousand and seven as the year that made you. Could you give us a bit of a, a portrait of where you were in your life and career at the beginning of that year, and what happened in two thousand and seven?
1: Yes, I've chosen two thousand and seven because I. Was tracing back, you know, this pivot point where I changed from being what I think of as a sort of pure psychiatrist and began an interest in what I later came to call the medical humanities. So at the beginning of 2007, I was working as an editor at the British Medical Journal for half the week. And for the other half of the week, had a first consultant post at the Maudsley Hospital in London, where I had trained. And I had come straight from school at the age of 17 into medical school. And had done a master's degree in that time also at King's College Hospital where I was studying mental health sciences but was able to study the history of psychiatry and also the anthropology of psychiatry as part of that and I wanted an adventure but I wasn't quite sure what that adventure might look like and I remember very vividly there was one morning on the London underground where it was very cramped there was nowhere to sit I was very hot I had a bag that contained papers for my work during the the day. I had a BlackBerry in another hand, which was sort of early precursor to the smartphone that had emails coming in from the British Medical Journal. I was balancing a coffee in the mix somewhere, and I looked up and there was an advert on the tube. There was a yellow kayak against this very blue sea, and it said 100% pure New Zealand. (laughs) <laughs> so I thought, oh, I wonder! <laughs> I wonder. I, I I call it the yellow kayak moments. So I had very few connections with New Zealand. I was getting some career mentoring at the time from someone who was based in New Zealand. So, and I had a very good friend who I trained and worked with, who was a New Zealander now living in London. So, I had some some small conversations, but it was really that poster that that set off a, a spark in my mind. So, I went and googled that evening, which was the New Zealand morning, and we had a. I had a correspondence with colleagues there, and they were very encouraging and said, Look, why don't you come for a year? And I did. And that year became four years. One year turned into, into the next because of that yellow kayak.
0: Well, there you go. I think you've just made some marketers dream in New Zealand to hear how impactful that's that one billboard. Uh, and I'm doing an Australian uh,
1: national Review, so apologies
0: yeah. to <laughs> Absolutely. Um could you tell us a little bit, Sabina, about how your personal experiences started to change the way you looked at your own profession?
1: Yes. And while I was there, one of the opportunities I had was to work on the East Cape. I worked on the, the remote, with remote rural communities and with a lot of Maori colleagues, particularly in a place called Gisborne and also Opotiki. And in Opotiki, I met an artist, Shona Hammond-Boys, who came to my clinic. She just turned up one day without an appointment and said, I want to talk to you. I'm doing this project with some of the young people who you might know from your clinic. And she was doing this amazing thing where with testapods, young people from the town who had been involved in graffiti and tagging, she was painting murals with them and told them that they could all be artists. And they, they transformed the town into a very beautiful place through this work. And Some of those young people had been in touch with psychiatric services. Others had been in in touch with youth justice. Before she did that work, the the mayor of Apotiki had said, you know, that we we really need to do something. But the the town had been described as being plagued by graffiti. So people were were really down on it and down on these young people. And I think it was the first time I'd seen in this very massive way the, the transformative power of art and how young people were using art to negotiate their adolescence and bicultural identity. And that really changed my thinking about lots of things. It made me think about this writing career that I'd always seen as very separate to my medical practice. And it made me think more broadly about using the the humanities in my work. So I then went on, as I I mentioned at the beginning, to study this master's in in medical humanities almost a decade later, so in in 2017. But within that, that decade, I had two daughters. And between the births of my two daughters, I experienced recurrent miscarriage. But it's a word I really don't like, miscarriage, because it, it implies that I'm somehow or a woman has somehow carried incorrectly. It was a, mm. a word that jarred. It sort of reduced me to a, a faulty container. But because I'd had recurrent miscarriages, I was referred to a treatment programme to help women with a programme of drugs and frequent scams. And that treatment programme was called the Natural Killer Cell Programme. And my husband was a, an army officer. We were living at the time at a large military headquarters. And I had this leaflet, natural killer cell protocol. And I thought, this sounds, this doesn't sound like women's health. It sounds like something out of a counterterrorism policy document. You know, <laughs> What am I being given? How are we talking about women's bodies and women's health? And I had another experience where I, for instance, had an ultrasound scan and the, I, I had to pay four pounds for UK pounds for it, and the person who took the money off me said, "Oh, don't worry. You know, if you don't have a heartbeat, you'll get your four pounds back." And I thought, "Gosh, this is oh so transactional." And then I was struck mm. too, you know, at these these photographs of the the scan that they're the only pictures I've got of myself where I'm completely unrecognizable. It was if I didn't exist. And at the same time, I was often receiving scan photos from friends who were using them. I think we all have a sort of proxy pregnancy announcements. Oh, oh there's this, this dual meaning here about what ultrasound scans mean to women and what how scans are spoken about within a, obstetric discourse. Now, there's a, a wider conversation in obstetrics in which women disappear, in which we are this sort of uterus, this container. And I had, by this point, completed my, my master's in the medical humanities, where one of the things I'd researched was the rituals of remembrance and mourning that women themselves had been repurposing from often very ancient religions. For example, I found a group of women in New York who were using a ritual called Mitsuku Kuyu, which is an ancient Buddhist ritual. And it literally means children of the waters. And they were using it to commemorate their children who had only known the waters of their mother's womb. And I thought, my goodness, there are other people mourning this. So I thought that I would do a PhD in in this area to look in more detail at how other women were writing about and making sense of miscarriages. And my plan had been to return in for a third time to to King's College London to pursue that PhD. And then I had another yellow kayak moment. So there's a a writer in the, the UK, Professor Rebecca Stott, who's a an acclaimed writer of historical fiction. And she wrote a memoir about her early life growing up in a cult called In the Days of Rain. And it's about the death of her father and her formative experiences and how that was was both life shaping and changing. And the memoir that she wrote was serialised on on the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation radio. And I listened to that and I thought, gosh, this is so affecting, so powerful this is how I want to write about miscarriage. I want to study what women are doing, but I want to write about this. So I I did exactly what I'd done after I'd seen that 100% pure poster. I Googled her and I found out that she was a professor of creative and critical writing at the University of East Anglia. And the University of East Anglia is the place in England where creative writing education started, we had the first master's course in creative writing education there just over 50 years ago, the 50th anniversary was, was last year, Ian McEwen was the first graduate of, of that scheme, so it was a, a place that trains writers, and although I'd worked as a journalist, I, I wasn't a creative writer by, by any stretch, the books I had written were were related to psychiatry, but I emailed Rebecca and said, look, I'd really like to write about my own experiences of recurrent miscarriages while working as an expert witness in the family court but I also would like to study how other women in contemporary fiction and non-fiction are writing about this and we met and she very generously said yes she would support me in that and I was fortunate to get funding from the UK Research Council to, to pursue that PhD and Rebecca introduced me to a colleague of hers Professor Tiffany Atkinson, who's an award winning poet who writes about representations of the body. And with Tiffany, I was able to look at how women were were writing this. And she taught me so much about how to look at language and patterns of language that had also then had had resonances for, for my psychiatric
0: work. Or well, from the way you've described it, Sabina Desani, I can well understand why you're on that list of 2022 new generation thinkers. It's fascinating work. I wonder if you could uh, add into that picture the one aspect that you've referred to already, which is the work that you did as an expert witness, because I understand that your memoir also includes chronicling the lives of three families who'd been referred for expert witness assessment. Uh, who were they and, and how do you write about them?
1: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So at the time I was having the recurrent miscarriages, I was working as part of a team that had been specifically commissioned to examine the lives of families who were in front of the family court, where for reasons of mental illness or drug addiction or neglect, the families were not able or were felt to perhaps be unable to look after their birth children And with my colleagues who worked in psychotherapy and in psychology and in social work, I looked at whether or not the severity of the mental illness or the drug addiction meant that those families weren't able to care for their children and whether those children's needs were better placed elsewhere. So I think it's important to say we made recommendations in response to a series of questions that came from the court And we were one source of evidence that the courts considered in in making their final decisions. When I first set out to write about the miscarriages, I had not planned to write about my work. But I realised when I started writing that during that time in my professional life, when I was experiencing recurrent miscarriages, I was focused on looking in detail at the language that was used between mothers and children, between children and fathers, within families. Through generations, because it's often through the language as well as through the actions that were used in families that we were able to build up patterns of attachment of the bonds in in families and see whether those were healthy bonds or whether they had been disrupted in, in early life. And almost all my professional conversations were about attachment. And when I started writing, I realised that a lot of what I was writing about was clinical detachment, that process that I recognised that i have also used as a, a doctor, where I was emotionally detaching myself from distressing emotional situations. How do you write about that? Well, I very clearly couldn't and wouldn't write about the real families that I had seen. These were families who had been mandated by the court to come and see mm that I worked in, and I didn't feel there was any way that they could ethically give informed consent to that, nor would I have asked for it. So I I was in the Department of Creative Writing. I created a series of fictional characters based on the broader themes that frequently come before Mm. the family. I see. So these are are not even composite, but these are made-up patients who carry some of the themes and difficulties that families coming to the, the courts have but creating those fictional composites allowed me then in the text to examine many of the collisions between my professional and personal life and to shed a light on, on clinical detachment.
0: Well Sabina Dasani it's been fantastic speaking with you and hearing about the really fascinating work that you're doing. Thank you so much for speaking with us on The Year That Made Me. Thank you, Gillian. And we always finish the year that made me by asking our guests to nominate a piece of music. What shall we go out with today, Sabina, and why? Um, I'd like to have Please Buy the Sugar Babes
1: all about you now. I heard it so much during that first yellow kayak year and (laughs) it's a song that has always invigorated me since and those moments where I've thought this is the traditional path to follow, I've heard that beat in my head and thought, no, dance your own tune and you'll do all right.
0: Fantastic. Well, I suppose we should give a warning that if you listen to this piece of music and look at a New Zealand tourism ad, you may well end up spending many years in New Zealand. But with that proviso, let's have a listen to The Sugar Babes now and Sabina Dasani. Thank you once again. It was so easy. is About You Now by The Sugar Babes, the track chosen by our guest on The Year That Made Me, Dr Sabina Dasani, consultant, child and adolescent psychiatrist and now also a doctoral researcher in creative and critical writing at the University of East Anglia. Sabina was chosen in the 2022 BBC list of New Generation Thinkers. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.